morning again. My wife caught me off guard with that, so let me gather my thoughts. That was a joke. You can kind of laugh if you like. But okay. Uh, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. And so I thought it would be appropriate for, for us to discuss this topic, which is the title, How Should We, Specifically as Christians, Celebrate Valentine's Day? Or should we even celebrate it at all? Have you heard how Valentine's Day first got started? Um, some of you have, some of you have not. There was a priest whose name was Valentine, and he lived in Rome. And this was approximately 250 years after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, when he was a priest, Claudius II was the emperor of Rome. And people referred to him as Claudius the Cruel. Needless to say, Valentine did not like him. He did not like the emperor, but he wasn't alone. Many people did not care for the emperor at that time. You see, Claudius II wanted a huge Roman army. He thought men, all men, should volunteer to join. However, many men did not want to leave home, leave their wives or their girlfriends. They didn't want to go off to some foreign distant land to fight in a war and possibly die. So that resulted in not many joining up. And this made the emperor very angry. And he had a crazy idea. If men could not be married, they would be more inclined to come join the Roman army. Now, a lot of people believe that law to be cruel, but especially the young people. Now, one of the favorite duties of a priest back in those days, and myself as a minister, is to officiate the wedding ceremony of two people. But after Claudius passed that law, that was that law to do such a thing, for a priest to do that. But he kept on performing marriages, oftenly and all the time, secretly. Now, remember that story. We'll get back to it here in just a minute. But the question remains, how should we as Christians, or should we celebrate Valentine's Day? My opinion it is to speak the truth in love, proclaiming God's love by sharing the gospel. That's how we should celebrate Valentine's Day. It shouldn't be limited just to one day, however. That should be every day of our lives, speaking the truth in love, proclaiming God's love by sharing the gospel. Psalms chapter 40, verse 9 and 10. I have proclaimed glad tiding of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. Listen to this. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Similar to what we just did. Opportunity for you to stand up and proclaim God's faithfulness, his righteousness, and his salvation. Speaking into the congregation. But as I thought of that, I could not escape Romans chapter 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do, don't ever be ashamed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a tangible expression 
of God's love. And I hate to quote the Beatles, but they got it right on this one. What the world needs now is love. Go out and walk among them out there in the shopping malls, in the Walmarts, anyone driving. People are mad. People are almost rude to now. They need to see that love of Christ demonstrated. And I remind of this every time I jump in my car to go down to Metroplex. I hate to say it. I get mad. And I told Tammy just the other day, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of other people dictating to me my mood. So I'm asking God to grant me patience as I go out and deal with people. To speak that truth in love, not only by speaking it, but also living it out. Now, with those two passages in mind, there's more you can turn to. But those passages in mind we just looked at, let's keep this in mind as we turn our attention to love. Because we're talking about love, but what is love? How would you describe love? 1 Corinthians 13, specifically verses 4 through 7. We just saw this on the video just a moment ago. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Here's one does not take into account a wrong suffered. In other words, does not keep score. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That is what love is. When I refer to love throughout this message, I'm not talking about the love as portrayed and defined as the world. I'm talking about the love that is described to us through God's word. And specifically as we see expressed through the person of Jesus Christ. And verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 13 takes us right to our passage that I just read at the beginning of service. Look what it says right off the bat in verse 8. Love never fails. It never ends. It is eternal. Now, this is not true of the spiritual gifts. Look back in verse 8, that if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, languages, they will cease. By the way, just as a passing, that word translated tongues can also be translated languages. In fact, back in Acts chapter 2, that's the very Greek word, glusea, that is used there at the day of Pentecost when the people hearing Peter preach heard in their own native tongue. The same word is used here. That's why some translations will render it languages. But if there are tongues or languages, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away or pass away. Now here's the point as we walk through this passage. Every gift is linked in some way to building up the church to maturity. Until the church is perfected. You can see that. It says that in verse 10. We'll get there in a moment. When perfection is achieved, the gifts have, will have served their purpose and they will be rendered obsolete. However, this will never happen with love because love will continue on and on and on for all eternity. In verse 9, Paul keeps on unpacking this, what this means. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. In other words, what we know is partial and incomplete. Prophecy, in part, could be only stood as only part of the whole picture. Even now, we only have the here and now, right? We can't do anything about five minutes ago. 
We surely don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. So all we know is limited. We can't see the entire picture. When God looks, he sees the entire picture in one glance. You and I cannot do that. God can. That's the reason he's God. And I've said this before. The reason we call the present the present, that's exactly what it is. It's a present. We don't know what's going to happen an hour from now, two hours from now. Just as a way of passing, do you realize you're just one phone call, one heartbeat, one car accident away from your world being completely turned upside down? That's the truth of it. Because how much control do we really have anyway? When did the weatherman get anything right? It ain't going to snow today. Wake up, there's five inches of snow on the ground. My point is this. We always must be ready. These gifts are only temporary. There are blessings in an imperfect age. The gift of knowledge, as central as knowledge is, is not exhaustive. When I went to seminary, a degree shelf life was only about a year and a half. That's how quickly information is coming out. None of my messages, any of my Sunday school classes I taught, they're nowhere they're exhaustive. They cannot be. See, knowledge is only limited. It's not exhaustive. The ability to, pro- to prophesy, however crucial in church life, had limited scope. One day it will give away to perfection, and the goal to which all the gifts are pointing will become reached, and there will be no more reason to have those gifts. Look back in verse 10. When the perfect comes, their partial or imperfect will be done away. This is describing the church when God's program for it is consummating in the coming of Christ. See, when Christ comes again, everything will be answered in one blink of an eye. The perfect will come. We won't need all these gifts because we'll see him as he is. Now, Jesus came to this earth one time already, but he was veiled in human flesh, born in a manger. He humbled himself. Ladies and gentlemen, when he comes back again, He's not coming as a baby born in a manger or a feeding trough. He's coming back truly as he is, king of kings and lord of lords, riding on a ride horse. So you see this maturity, and he builds upon this maturity thing. So you see what he's doing. He says love is way up here. These spiritual gifts, they're good, but they cannot compare to love because what does love do? Love continues on. Even when Christ comes again, God's love will not stop. It will continue on and on and on forever. So he breaks down into another illustration. Verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to think like a child. I I reasoned like a child. Now this is an illustration using the imagery of growth and maturity. These gifts are to be used to bring the church from a state of infancy To a state of adulthood. That's how you should be with your walk in Christ. When you first come to Christ, you're an infant, you're a baby. But you are to continue to grow and mature in your walk. The problem with the American church is we fail to do that. We have a lot of people who have been Christians for a lot of time, but they never really matured in the faith. Now, this is not the only place that Paul uses that imagery or that illustration. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 is another instant. Look what he says. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. 
All having spiritual gifts to follow out that office or that calling. Why is that? For the equipping of the saints. Now we know who that is, don't we? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So you are giving these gifts, not necessarily the pastor. You as saints, as believers, you have these gifts to do the work of service or ministry. Why is that? To the building up of the body of Christ. It's your responsibility and my responsibility to build up the body of Christ, which is the church. And until we attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, keep growing. And he continues on his Ephesian passage. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about about every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking, listen to me, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, cause the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. In other words, it takes everybody fulfilling their calling, using their spiritual gift to build up the body of Christ, speaking the truth in what? In love. What's love look like? Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7. You follow? And he goes on to say in that same verse, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Say it plainly, when I grew up. When I grew up, I put away childish things. How many times have I told my own daughters, you're not a little girl anymore, grow up? Have you ever said that to anybody? Oh, would you just grow up? Paul is applying this illustration to himself. Now, the talking, the thinking, and reason as a child it almost offsets the prophecy and tongues and knowledge that he mentioned before. With the coming of adulthood, such gifts will become passe. As we keep growing in our faith and maturing in our faith when he comes again, we don't need us anymore. Now, he's not applying that he or the church has yet arrived. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I've already attained it or have already become perfect. Did you catch that? I echo these words to you. I haven't done it either. I haven't got there yet. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Keep my eyes on the prize. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How do you mature? You keep pressing on. Forget what's past. You confess it, you repent from it, and you move on. If we were honest with each other, how much is in this room and listening to my voice via the Internet, how many are kept down by fear? That the enemy has beaten you up with fear. You can't do that. Remember what you did a year ago? Quit listening to the enemy. He lies to you. You listen to the voice of truth. Even the great apostle Paul says, look, I forget what's behind me. 
I press on towards the goal. And I've said this many, many times. We can press onward with full anticipation and security, not because of the path before me, but because of the path behind me. Every time I fell, every time I goofed up, every time I strayed off the path, God brought me back. I confessed it. I repented of it. He forgave me. He picked me up. He said, carry on, son. That's how it's done. That's why this is so important. Come alongside each other, speaking the truth in love. Because if we truly love somebody, we will tell them the truth. How can you let someone go to hell simply because they didn't know the truth? Hmm. And he uses this illustration in verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly or indistinctly, but then face to face. Corinth was famous for its bronze, its bronze mirrors. Now, you can cast a reflection in it, but it's not very clear. So you see what Paul's saying? You look at that mirror that you have, you can see it, but it's kind of dim. It's not really distinct. But when I look at you face to face, I can definitely see who you are. It's that contrast between the imperfection and the perfection. Seeing someone's face in the mirror versus someone seeing your face when they're, you're actually right before you. It's like, it's like live streaming. As great as live streaming is, you can see me. I can't see you. You can't see everybody out here like I can. We could take the camera and show you, but it's not the same thing as being here around the people of God, experiencing them face to face. Nothing can compare to being live with somebody else. It does not compare. Tammy would send me pictures when I was in the Navy in Hawaii. And as great as that picture was, it still wasn't Tammy. It was a great image of Tammy, but I wanted Tammy there, not this picture. I want her here now. This picture's great. You ever felt like that? You look at that picture and say, man, I'm glad I have this picture, but it's still not the same thing. Same way is true in the church. Same contrast between the imperfect time, which is now, and the perfect time when Christ comes again. See, this way we're seeing now is, is dim. We experience God because he's here now. All right? We, we have evidence of God. We see him move. We can feel him. He speaks to us. But we can't see him physically with our eyes. You ever been anywhere where you just get that glimpse of God and you don't want to go? Spirit's really talking to you. I'm mad just stay here all day. But Paul's telling us when that perfect time, when that time comes again, get this. You will see God the way he sees you now. In other words, he sees you just like you are now. We can't see God truly as he is now. He's here in spirit. We can't see him. But on that day, you will see God for who he is. Do you realize that? If you're a Christian this morning, you can look him, our Savior, this guy who is described with eyes flaming of fire, white hair and his robe and feet look like they've been in a furnace, these bronze feet, and you'll be able to look at him in the eye because he shed his blood for you and see him and experience him as he truly is. And as great as worship is here on earth, it does not compare to your experience it in heaven. 
Here's one more thing about heaven. We'll move on. Do you realize in heaven all sin will be eradicated? No sin whatsoever. That means no, go- no gossiping, no jealousy. Everything will be perfect. Look at each other. Get used to each other. You're going to be spending all eternity with each other. I heard a Christian comedian say one time, you know, you might get there and be shocked that you see someone in heaven, but there might be someone in heaven shocked to see you there as well. It's not about what we did, dearly beloved. It's who we all owe it to, and it's Christ. That's who our praise goes to. He goes, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. My partial knowledge of God, which is on display. You see, you need to come to Sunday school. I'm saying this. My limited knowledge of God was on display for everyone to see during Sunday school this morning. Try and describe God in the way I can understand. But if I could, he ceased to be God. But on that day, it will be displaced by the perfect knowledge of God. You ever heard of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? The last stanza. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend even so It is well with my Lord. Everything we've talked about, everything we've looked at, all the pictures we've seen, all the discussions we had, we will see it. Our faith will become our sight and we'll see it. Just as I see you now, what will that be like? What will that experience be like? I don't know, but I look forward to it. And of course, he sums up in verse 13. Now faith, hope, love abide these three But the greatest of these is love. See, faith and hope are expressions of love. Because if you truly love God, you're going to have faith in God, and your hope is going to be in God. So they will continue on, because they're expressions of love. But as stated earlier, the spiritual gifts one day will cease to exist. However, love will endure forever, because we started out on verse 8, because why? Love never fails. Now you look at this whole thing as we step back, take it in context. The Corinthians were perverting the purposes of the spiritual gifts. They took them from a unifying influence on the church to one fostering fragmentation and discord. They pursued individual freedom and personal enhancements at the expense of other members of the body whose need or needs were trampled and ignored along the way. So you look at 1 Corinthians 13, the whole context of that book, Paul's talking about all these gifts. Hey, that's great and wonderful, but let me tell you about the greatest gift of all that is unifying, and it will never go away. It is love, and it's what love looks like. Love is kind. Love is is. Not jealous, does take account of wrong, suffered, all those things we looked at. See, love is the greatest gift. The gifts of the Spirit should be controlled by the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, if you go to Galatians where the fruit of the Spirit is listed, the first one out of the bag is what? Love. Love. If you have love and everything is, is done in love, That will lead you to exercising your gift or gifts, your spiritual gifts, 
as a benefit to the church body and use them in the way that will honor God. Love makes all the difference, dear beloved. How we share Christ with them, how we speak the truth, how we handle ourselves, love makes all the difference. Now the rest of Valentine's story. You've heard all this thing about love. Let's go back and see what happened with Valentine, shall we? One day he was marrying a young couple and he heard footsteps at his door. The young couple escaped, but unfortunately he was caught. He was thrown into prison and his sentence was death. While up in his prison cell, young people would come by and throw flowers and notes to him to encourage them. One of these young people was a daughter of a prison guard and he would allow her to go into his prison cell while he was not too far away watching everything. And they would visit and talk and sit and just talk for hours. On the day Valentine was to die, which was February the 14th, 269 A.D., some say 270 A.D., he left this young woman a note. He thanked her for her friendship and loyalty, and he signed it, Love from your Valentine, which gave a new custom of people writing and exchanging notes of love to each other, signed your Valentine because of what he did. He's also known as St. Valentine. We come back to the original question, though, don't we? How should we celebrate Valentine's Day? Speaking the truth in love. Love defined by God's word, not by what the world says it should be. See, the world says love somebody till they do something to make you mad and split. We live in a throwaway society. TV breaks, throw it away, get a new one. Car breaks, throw it away, get a new one. Your wife makes you mad, throw it away, get a new one. I'm not advocating that, but that's basically what our society says. But as Larry pointed out to me on Friday night, which I knew this verse, Ephesians says, I am to love my wife as Christ loves the church and give myself up for her, willing to die for her if need be. And as I said earlier, if you truly love somebody, you will speak the truth in love. If you celebrate Valentine's by the giving of Valentine's cards or not, all I'm telling you, this is a perfect opportunity when people are talking about love for you, is to speak the truth in love, what love really is, what it looks like, how it talks, how it acts. What does our motto say? Living by faith, known by love. Because love is an expression, I mean, excuse me, faith is an expression of love. And when people see that, they'll be attracted. Not maybe at first, but it's really sparked their interest. And guess what? It's already happening, little by little. I want to close with this passage. It's in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus speaking. Listen to what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Huh, that'd be great if that's where he stopped. Well, I can do that. I can love all of you. I pretty much like everybody in the room. I don't disagree with any of you. That'd be easy. But that's not where that passage stops. You love one another even as I 
have loved you. Okay, Jesus, you want me to love everybody here as you love them and as you love me. Uh-oh, I have a problem. See, I can't do that without the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm, I'm not strong enough. I'm too weak. So even as I love you, that you also love one another. By this, all men, everybody, will know that you're among disciples if you have love for one another. <laughs> Is that how we love one another? Do people see that? Do we follow through with it? That doesn't mean you take sin and you wipe it underneath the rug. You know, you, you, you confront it, but it's the way you do it. So Charlie back there, if I hear something Charlie may have done, I don't go to him and say, hey, you straighten up, buddy, turn or burn. No, you don't do that. That's out of spite. But I go and say, hey, brother, what's going on? I love you too much to see you continue to throw this away. And by the way, I'm struggling with this. Would you come with me together to the throne of grace so both of us can find help in time of need? That makes the whole difference in the world, speaking the truth in love. Where are you at today? Where is your life at today? The gospel, dare I say the entire Bible, has been characterized as God's love letter to humanity. The Old Testament filled of wrath and judgment, but every time before God did something with Israel, if you would just simply confess and turn back to me, this will not happen. Every single time. In the New Testament, we get this huge expression of what God meant by love. By He, because you know what? I'm going to send you my son so you can understand and see with your own eyes what I mean when I say I love you. Now, one day, when Christ comes again, all the time for grace and repentance will be gone. But in the meantime, God is calling out to you. I love you. I love you. Would you be mine? Take the opportunity now before it's everlasting too late. And the second thing, if you have something against a fellow brother and sister in Christ... You need to take care of that first. The Bible tells us before you give any gift or offer any prayer to me, you take care of that first. Then come to me. Well, Tim, you don't know what he's done or she's done. Let me tell you, I've seen God work some huge miracles in my short lifetime. I've seen marriages restored. I've seen people set free from drugs and alcohol. They still have they still fall from time to time, but the whole lifestyle changes. Just, you can't explain it. And they've gone to every counseling they could possibly go to. But in that moment, God stepped in and said, let me show you what I can do. And he'll do it. Or perhaps he's leading you here to join us. It's not the perfect church. This is not the perfect church. But we're striving to be people who live by faith, who are known by love. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And most of all, we thank you for your love that you have demonstrated 
in the most tangible way possible by sending your only son to pay for our sin. We may have forgiveness and spend all eternity with you. And Father, I know even now the enemy is trying to influence individuals here, individuals watching via live stream. Dear God, I pray that you would just cast them out of here. He has no business here. May we hear your voice, the voice of truth. May our lives be different when we walk out than when we, walk, when we walked in. Simply because we have been in the presence of the almighty living God who loves us so much that you would send your son so we can have a relationship with you. Dear God, continue to move, continue to speak. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please?